Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. When you think about what it is to have a relationship with God, what's the image that comes to mind? What do you most lean into? So uh, for some people, your answer might be, well, what I most think of is a friendship. I, I think of God uh, as my best friend. Or, or maybe it's, um, I, I primarily see God as uh, a father uh, and me as a son or a daughter. It's a, a father-kid relationship. Or perhaps it's a, a, an employee with a boss that comes to mind. Or uh, There's all sorts of other things that might be the first one that comes to mind. And a lot of these we get from the Bible. As we read through what God's revealed of himself and how he relates to us, we pick up all these different images and metaphors for it. And none of them quite get at the whole, but all of them come together to paint this picture of how we relate to God. And so it's important for us to think about all of them at different times. And I wonder how you feel about this one. I'm going to quote an American pastor called Francis Chan uh, and just see what you think. See, See how this lands with you as you hear this. He says, God is calling you to a passionate love relationship with himself. The answer isn't working harder at a list of do's and don'ts. It's falling in love with God. How does that land? Does that land as something that you're like, yeah, my spirit just gets that. I'm, I'm, I'm leaning in. I resonate with that idea. Do you feel a bit awkward? Do you feel like, um, oh, I'm not sure about that one. That one, uh, the, the whole kind of employee boss thing is safe. Friends, I can handle. This feels a bit too, too much, maybe. Um, this is another image we've got in the Bible. And that's what we're going to explore in this series. And there's one book in the Bible that probably more than any other deep dives into this. And uh, that's the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. So over the next four weeks, we're going to have a bit of fun. We're going to look at the Song of Songs together. Um, It's a small book of romantic poetry that you find in the middle of the Bible. Uh, So if you open your Bible randomly in the middle, odds are you'll either get Psalms or Isaiah. Uh, Somewhere wedged in between them are a few little smaller books, and Song of Songs is one of them. And most of it takes the form, it's only eight chapters long, of two people talking to each other. So there's a man and a woman who are in love with each other. They're called the lover and the beloved, or sometimes the bride and the groom, although technically the wedding happens halfway through the book. And we see it as a picture of God's love for his people, or the love of Jesus for his church. Throughout the Bible, the church is called the bride of Christ. And the Bible builds to this climax of the great wedding day of Christ and his bride, the church. And this book kind of paints something of that. So this idea of being the bride, this love relationship with God, that us together as the people, the the church has, is a strong biblical picture of how it is to relate to God. And of course, if together we're the bride of Christ, then individually each of us need to in some way engage with this idea, engage with this image and picture that we're a part of. 
So I'm just going to, before we dive into it, give you a few reasons why I think it's the right thing to do to read Song of Songs this way. Because on the surface, it doesn't say loads about God. It's two people talking to each other about how they're in love with one another. So let me share five quick reasons why we're going to do this and see this as more than just a human relationship being described. The first one is this. All through the Bible, marriage, when it's talked about, is seen as pointing beyond itself to be a picture of what it is for God to relate to his people. So you see this right in Genesis as uh, the first people are getting married and it's in the language used to describe that. Right through to the end of Revelation where it's building up to the, the wedding of Christ and his people. You see it in the Old Testament prophets using this language of marriage between God and his people. You see it in the Gospels as John the Baptist is describing himself as like the best man and Jesus is the groom. You see it in the letters of the New Testament. So as Paul explains all about marriage, he says, look, this is about Christ and the church. It doesn't just stop as a marriage thing. So whenever we're learning about what marriage is and what marriage should be, Throughout the Bible, we're taught that's meant to lift our heads to this greater relationship between God and his people. Here's reason number two, then. Throughout history, this is the way Christians have read this book. So the earliest Christians who read this, well, this is obviously about Jesus and the church. And for about 1,800 years, that was pretty much unopposed in how people read it. It's only in the last couple of centuries with modernism and, uh, and basically our, our kind of society being much less interested in talking about spiritual stuff and much more interested in talking about sexual stuff that there's been a bit of a, a flip in how some people have read it. And even before the first Christian readers, the early Jewish interpreters, they'd read it the same way. They'd see it as a book about God and his people. Here's number three, then. It's poetry. And when you're writing poetry, the images that you use are significant. And in the Song of Songs, the images are drawn from the Garden of Eden. They're drawn from the, the temple and the way all the architecture of the temple was done. It's drawn from the way the promised land is described. All these places where people were closest to God, where the relationship with God was at its closest, they're the images being picked up to describe what this relationship is like. Number four is this. Jesus, when he's teaching about the Old Testament, says, all of it points to me. So when we read the Song of Songs, we should be expecting it to point us to Jesus. And then lastly, just the name of it, Song of Songs, is an echo of Holy of Holies. Do you see the same rhythm of the word? Song of Songs, Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was the place where the presence of God was most directly accessible. And it's like in this song, God's presence is drawing close to us. 60% of what we get is in the female voice. So the two people speaking to each other, she occupies 60% of it. He occupies about 30% of it. The other 10% are onlookers who are adding their comments or narrators who are describing things that are going on. And usually our translators help us out. So often in our Bible, we'll see things like him or her, and it'll just tell us who's speaking when. Now, that's not in the original, but most of it is pretty obvious. Every now and then, it's a bit ambiguous, but most of the time, it's pretty clear. And like good poetry always does, it works on lots of different levels. So you'll read it, and you'll be like, 
oh, that's really nice. And then you'll read it again. You're like, oh, oh, there's some stuff here. I, I haven't read that the first time through. And then you'll read it again and you'll pick up some, something else. There's hints at things. It's, it's quite evocative. It's quite explicit in some of the hints, but not in a tasteless way. It's really uh, subtle as well. Uh, and like when you're reading any poetry, you're not meant to just take everything really literally. So let me give you an example. When he's trying to make her feel good about herself, one of the compliments he gives her is, your neck is like the Tower of David. Um, <laughs> your, your teeth are like pairs of U's next to each other, each one with a partner. Now, I don't know how you'd feel if someone said that to you. You might not be complimented. And if you're trying to really literalise him, okay, she might have been a very strange-looking person if he's <laughs> describing her in this way. We're not meant to do that. We're not meant to uh, just say, okay, well, it's obviously just a um, direct um, description, but it's meant to evoke feeling. It's meant to share something about the Tower of David. It might be to do with the security that he felt in her. It's meant to uh, make us feel what he feels. Also, we're not meant to allegorise everything. So it's not that like every little detail has some hidden meaning. And if you go on the internet and look for allegories of the Song of Songs, you'll find some really fun ones. My favourite one, one of the church fathers, is when it's talking about her two breasts. Apparently they're the Old Testament and the New Testament. <laughs> Where do you get that from? What we're meant to do with it isn't to take it literally or allegorise it, but it's to get swept up in the passion behind it, the emotion behind it. What's the feeling behind these words? And then how do we take that same feeling and express that into our relationship with God? That's the approach I want to take. And so what that means is as we read this, we're not reading it at a distance. You know, the Bible commentator Ross Clark says, in the song... The reader isn't some third-party observer, but is a participant who's being courted. You know, these words we read, this poetry, it's not just describing someone else's relationship, but it's inviting us into our own relationship with God. It's like over the next few weeks, we're going to be romanced by the Lord, stirring up a passion and intensity in our souls for him. I think that's a really good, profound thing. Now, we're not going to read all of it. I'm going to pick out a few of the, the key themes. We'll read certain verses uh, to take us through some of the highlights of the song. And we're going to start at the beginning. So if you've got a Bible with you, please open it to Song of Songs. Uh, if you're following along on your phone or some app, Song of Songs chapter 1 is where to open up to. If you don't have any of that with you, but you do want to follow on the screen, you can do it that way. Um, so here we go. The Song of Songs which is Solomon's. And then it goes straight into her voice. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is perfume poured out. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you. Let us make haste. The king has brought me into his chambers. That's a pretty high-octane start to the book, isn't it? It's not, it's not easing in. It's like little introduction, Song of Songs, which is Solomon. Right, boom, I want, I want to be kissed. That's the first thing she says. She's not coy. She's not holding anything back. She's straight in there. And what she wants, it's not just she says, uh, can you kiss me? He, she's specified, I want the kisses of his mouth. It's not a peck on the cheek. It's not an awkward Christian side hug. That's not what she's after here. She wants the kisses of his mouth. 
Okay, we're going to get really kind of awkward for a second. Just stop and think of what a kiss actually is. It's weird, isn't it? It's a really weird thing. Like, if you had to explain it, let's say alien from outer space arrives and is like, just explain what's going on here. And you have to, like, give words to it. The moment you try to explain it, you just make it sound really, really odd. And yet there's something about the kiss, isn't there, that's, that's magical beyond what any description could capture. It's like the human heart is hardwired somehow into this desire. The kiss changes a relationship irreversibly. Here's what Emil Ludwig said. The decision to kiss for the first time is the most crucial in any love story. It changes the relationship of two people much more strongly than even the final surrender because the kiss already has within it that surrender. It's a powerful thing that she's asking for here. Also, apparently, it's the marker of a healthy marriage. There was a BBC podcast that did, like, statistics on what makes a healthy marriage, and they found out the number one marker of a healthy marriage was the frequency of kissing. Actually, even more than the frequency of sex. Frequency of kissing was the number one marker of a healthy marriage. So maybe, to conclude... Cher was right, after all. If you want to know if he loves you so, it's in his kiss. <laughs> There's a power. It's not to be un- undertaken carelessly or casually. And the Song of Songs will have as much to say about uh, holding back and waiting as it does to say about giving. And we'll come to that later. But she wants his kisses. So let's think about it. What do we learn from that? How do we reflect on Because this is in the Bible. The Bible's meant to be profitable and helpful for our spiritual life. So we read a verse like this. What are we meant to do? Obviously, we don't lean it literally into our relationship with God. But we do notice that behind it is desire. Behind it, she, she really, really is longing for closeness with this lover. And, and the dictionary defines desire as conscious impulse towards something that promises enjoyment or satisfaction in its attainment. I read that, yeah, yeah, I want that. When it comes to my relationship with God, I want there to be in me this impulse towards God. And I know that drawing close to God promises enjoyment. There'll be satisfaction as I'm close in my relationship with God. I want a piece of that. I remember when I was first getting to know Emma, so my wife Emma, uh, we met um, 13, 14 years ago uh, down in London, we were part of a church, and Emma was in charge of all the setup team at that church, so all the getting there early, lugging all the kit out, setting up the room, all of that stuff. Uh, I'd recently joined the church, guess which team I volunteered to serve on? <laughs> setup team, isn't it? Like, so because there's someone that I'm drawn to, I want to be around, it wasn't my only motive, I wanted to serve God and all that too, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know. (laughs) You're rightly cynical. (laughs) Because there's something when you're drawn and you want to be there. Actually, after the services, Emma would put all the stuff away in the store cupboard. And guess who kept gravitating to the store cupboard? That's what longing (laughs) does. The door was open, other people were around. (laughs) We see people acting like this throughout the Bible in their relationship. With God, Think about uh, when Jesus was invited to dinner at the Pharisee's house, and uh, there was a woman there who uh, had a reputation for all sorts of sinful activities. She hadn't been invited, but 
She turns up anyway. She's drawn. She sees the one that, that she loves, Jesus, and she's drawn in. And, and she sees that he's not been treated well. His feet haven't been cleansed. That was the normal hospitality of the day. So uh, she's drawn to him. She washes his feet for him with her tears. She dries it with her hair. Or, or think about John, the disciple. You know, at, at the Last Supper, they're all eating. Jesus is teaching, and he just lays his head on Jesus's chest. And that wasn't a normal thing to do uh, because he keeps referring to himself. By the way, I'm the one who laid my head on Jesus's chest. He keeps bringing it up. Why? Because he's drawn to Jesus and he wants to be close to him. Or think about Moses when they're about to enter the promised land and they're having this negotiation and God's like, it's fine, you guys go in. And Moses is like, God, if you're not going with me, I don't even want to do it. I want to be where your presence is. That's where I'm drawn to. I think about David in the Psalms who can write, as the deer longs for the flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, God. We see through the scriptures, people who love God are drawn to him. They want to be where he is. There's a desire for God that's part of a relationship with him. And so Charlie Cleverly, pastor, writer, says this, her lover's kisses are the theme of the bride's life. It's also the theme of everyone who seeks God, to know him deeply and to be known by him. So I don't know what you make of this image. I don't know what the, the feelings in the room are. I'm guessing there's a mix. I'm guessing uh, when I've spoken with friends about this, there's been all sorts of reactions. And I bet in the room there are different reactions here too. I bet some are finding it really helpful. And I bet this idea of wanting to draw close to God is speaking to you in a meaningful way. I bet to some it feels a bit weird. I bet there's that kind of alienness to it. I like, can't imagine kissing Jesus. You're not meant to. It's poetry, okay? Let's not, let's not go there. That's not what it's trying to do. It's about the intensity of her longing to go for that kiss that gets transformed into a longing for the closeness and presence and intimacy with God. And to know that he sees you in the same way. He longs for closeness with you just like that as well. And again, Charlie Cleverly says, the kiss of God is a metaphor. It's a picture painted in a thousand words. We shouldn't think of kissing Jesus. That's entirely outside the boundaries of God's will. Rather, think of Christ as the kiss of God to the world. Isn't that a beautiful image? That Jesus himself is like God's kiss to the world. His expression of love, his expression of desire for closeness is to give his son. Wow. So you might wonder, well, okay, fine, I get it, I get it, I want to, I want to draw close to God, okay, uh, I see what the image is, how do I do it? What does it look like to actually do this? <laughs> Here's the thing, right, about kisses. There's no lessons. You don't, like, sign up for uh, a class in how to do it. There isn't an online seminar. Maybe there is. I've never uh, come across it. It's not an instruction manual thing. It comes naturally. Like, you don't have a step-by-step -step guide of, like, okay, step one, put your lips together. Step two, draw in close. It, it doesn't work like that. There's something naturally of the heart expressing itself. And when it comes to our relationship with God and our closeness with God, it's much less about following one, two, three, step, step, step. Oh, you've done it. You've expressed your love for God. And it's much more about the heart that wants to be close to him, just drawing in because that's what you want to do. It comes from the inside out. And that's what happened in all those 
New Testament examples, Old Testament examples. The woman with the um, washing Jesus' feet with the, the tears and the hair, it's not that she'd give, been given instructions on this is how you show love to Jesus. She just saw him and wanted to be close and her heart was breaking for the way he's been treated. So she just did it without much thought for what anyone else saw going on there. But I did discover something when I was researching this. And I, it's one of the coolest things I've discovered in, in the last year or so. So I thought I'd share it with you. And uh, for those of you who like to nerd out on Greek words, this one is for you. So when, when, when we read the New Testament, there's a word that's sometimes translated worship. So in, in your English translation, you'll see worship. The Greek word behind it a lot of the time is the word proskuneo. And proskuneo is a compound word, so it's made up of two different bits that are mashed together to make the word. And the first bit of it, the pros bit of it, means move towards. And the second bit of it, the kaneo bit of it, means kiss. So the word, when we read about worship in our New Testament, is actually moving towards to kiss. You can think of leaning in for the kiss is the Greek word that we render worship. So as we see... This imagery, thinking about the kiss that she's drawn to, perhaps that's what we're talking about, drawing near in worship. And perhaps this idea of drawing in to be close to the Lord, that's what we're thinking of when we're worship. It's not standing at a distance and giving him praise, which giving him praise is important, but it's not that distant reverent awe. It's the, the closeness of one who's been invited in. So why does she long for this? Why does she want his kisses? Well, she explains it. She says, for your love is better than wine. Your love is better than wine. Right. Uh, I won't ask you to put your hands in the air, but is there anyone in the room who likes wine? <laughs> okay, people are going for it anyway. Hands are going up. Despite wine is a good thing. I remember... Um, but back at Christmas, so Colin, who uh, is part of the team at CCM, was cooking a, a Christmas dinner for the whole staff team. And he put in our, in our WhatsApp group uh, a photo of the wine that he was going to get. It was nice wine. It wasn't like a, a cheap off-the-shelf one. He, he picked out some good wine. And just the buzz and the excitement around that group, it just ramped up. In fact, I, I won't name and shame, but, but someone did suggest we start a wine ministry here at church. <laughs> Wine's a good thing, and we know that it can be abused if it's drunk to excess. So we know there's a shadow side to it, and we know that sometimes for some people it's problematic, it's not helpful. We get that. And yet as we read through how the Bible teaches on it, we see the general feeling towards it is this is a good thing, it's a blessing. We see in the Psalms, Psalm 104, it says, you bring forth wine to gladden the human heart. It's a gift from God. And yet as good as wine is, the love of this one that she's wanting to kiss her is better. Amy Bird says this, the good news explodes in the song. It's the best wine that we didn't even know we were missing. Intimacy with our bridegroom. It's the wine that we are invited to intoxicate ourselves with. That, that idea of being intoxicated with the love of God, that's what we're being invited into. It's like she's giddy. Do you, do you get the feeling as we read her words that she, she's giddy, she's intoxicated, she's just drawn in. And we're invited to be giddy with the love of God. And it goes on. She, she makes comparisons with oil and perfume and being brought into the chambers. And there's so much I could say about all of these things. We've only done one verse so far, um, but I'm going to jump a little bit later uh, in the psalm and just look at one other thing. And so uh, just turn with me to chapter four. And we'll pick it up again 
from verse 12. So 412 to 5-1. And now it's him speaking. So we're picking up some of his words to her. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A garden locked, a fountain sealed. Your channel is an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits. Henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon. With all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes. With all chief spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. And then uh, it, it changes now. She's the speaker. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, that its fragrance may be wafted abroad. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Back to him. I come to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gather my myrrh with my spice. I eat my honeycomb with my honey. I drink my wine with my milk. And then it goes to another voice that isn't either of them. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. What we have here, this is the consummation moment of the song. So chapters three and four are describing their wedding. And then uh, this is the poetry that comes right after that. And some of the imagery we get, verse 12, he calls her a garden locked, which, you know, I was saying earlier, there's all the um, images from like the Garden of Eden. Think about the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve kicked out of it, and then the access to it is barred. And the way she's been described as like a garden is meant to think of Eden, and the access is no longer there. But that changes in verse 16 as she gives the invitation, let my beloved come to his garden. And then in verse 1, he accepts that invitation, I come to my garden, my sister, my bride. It's hard to miss the implication for their relationship. They've just got married, and uh, the place where the garden was locked is now open, and he's invited in. And actually, that voice uh, at the end of verse 1, the extra verse, a lot of the commentators say they think that might be the voice of God the Father, kind of applauding and cheering on and delighting in this union between them. And uh, it's back to this image of being drunk with love. But I just want to pick up on these two ideas. So verse 12, the garden locked, and then verse 16, the come to my garden. The two contrasted ideas of keeping and giving, the garden closed and the garden open. They're the two gears of a relationship. In human terms, before marriage, there's a keeping, there's a garden locked phase to the relationship. And then in marriage, there's the garden open, let my beloved come to his garden. Both of those can be really challenging in human relationships. They can be difficult things. So if you're in a relationship and you're struggling in either of those things, let me encourage you, talk it through with people. Get pastorally people walking alongside you and helping you through it. But this morning, what I want to address really is the spiritual version of it. I don't want to labour it into the human relationships. You see, the bride's desire... For her lover means she wants to utterly give herself to him. She's saying, come to the garden and eat its fruit. She's kept herself for him, but now she's giving herself to him. Both of these things are part of what it is to have a relationship with God. If you're in a relationship with God, part of it is, I'm going to keep myself for you, God. I'm going to keep my heart for you. I'm not going to give my heart to anyone or anything else. It's reserved. This is God's space. And actually, so often through the Old Testament, the rebuke of the prophets, when they mention the marriage metaphor, is actually you've not kept your heart for God. You've not been faithful 
to the Lord in this. You've given your heart to other gods, other practices, other nations that don't honour him. It's really important that we keep our hearts for God. In fact, in the New Testament, we get the same. Jesus says to one of the churches in Revelation 2, you've forsaken your first love. Your heart hasn't been guarded and kept like it should be. But then there's the giving. There's the giving of our hearts to God as well. You know, I've noticed, I don't know if you've noticed the same thing, but it's possible to become so focused on, I'm going to keep myself for God, that we never quite get round to giving ourselves to him. By all means, keep your heart for him, but don't keep your heart from him. Don't hold back on the worship and love to be expressed in the relationship you have with him. How much do we know what it is to just give ourselves wholeheartedly, passionately, intimately, fully to the Lord? To enjoy closeness, to enjoy presence, to lean in to him. Confession time. I used to really, really struggle with this. I'd go to prayer meetings and someone who was leading the prayer meeting would say something like, right, let's just have a bit of time now of just enjoying God's presence. So let's just wait on the Lord for a bit. And I, sh- I shouldn't really say this as a church leader, should I? But um, I'd often be thinking, do we have to? Do we have to do that? I've got a list of things I want to see happen. There's all this kind of prayer list stuff. I want God to do this. I want him to do that. We should pray for these people. We should pray for this situation. Can we just get on with praying for the stuff we've come here to pray for? It took me a while to understand that more than all of that stuff, just drawing near and being in God's presence, enjoying the relationship I have with him is what it's all about. One of the amazing truths of the gospel is that we have union with Christ. It's not just some kind of contractual thing that we've signed. It's like, okay, it's fine, we're in, he's done it, fine. But actually we get to be united with him. It's a relational thing. His very presence comes into us. Not in the same way the song is talking about, but more closely, into our very hearts, His presence is welcomed in. So the level of intimacy we can have for God is even closer than this metaphor in the Song of Songs would point to. Love of God is not something to be scared of. It's what we're made for. That's what I want to impress upon you this morning. We're made to draw close. I wonder if the musicians will just jump forward. I want us to respond to it. And the moment we've got this morning, the, the space we're creating here today is a space for you to accept this invitation that the song offers. God wants our hearts. God wants your heart. He's after it. It's like God is saying to you, come away with me, my love. Will you say to him, yes, yeah, I will come. I will come to my garden. This is a moment like the bride here, to express what we long for. She's, she's raw. She's, uh, she's full on. She's not holding back in saying what she wants. This morning is a space for you to do the same, to be raw and passionate and intimate and demanding in our desire for God, in our, in our longing to meet with him and be close with him. She wants the kisses of her lover's mouth. What do you want? What do you desire from the Lord, the lover of your soul. Today we have permission, in fact more than that, we're positively encouraged to draw near, to bring that worship, that proskuneo, that all of ourselves to him.